At Cool Air Products, we developed AC Smart Seal Quick Shot with professionals in mind. It's the only product on the market that's three in one, with sealant, lubricant, and UV dye all in a single application. It's non toxic, non flammable, 100% safe to the touch, eco friendly, and compatible with all refrigerants. It's a safe solution option, backed by years of R&D, Intertech tested, and has sealed millions of leaks. AC Smart Seal, the professional's choice. Yo, 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 guys. Well, it's, um, it's Friday, and it's about 10 o'clock p.m., and I just got off the phone with a very interesting guy, Jason Rende. Now, we had a, a really good discussion on some residential heat load, heat loss calculations, duct design, and airflow and air balancing, something that I don't really get into all that much or at all, I should say. Because uh, I don't really do much residential and I'm not really an, an expert on air balancing or load calculation. So it was really cool to talk to Jason to get his side of the story and what he's up to and how he goes about things. Uh, really smart guy. So um, this podcast coming up is a little bit different than the norm. Mostly it's about refrigeration and commercial and um, stuff like that. This is more residential based and I know a lot of uh, techs that are following the HVAC know-it-all brand and listening to the podcast are, in fact, residential guys. So this is a good podcast for you guys to, to listen to, pay attention to. This is the HVAC know-it-all podcast, guys. It's late. I'm almost going to bed. Or maybe I'll sit on the couch and have a beer first. But anyway, I'm your host, Gary McCready. How can we have a podcast on airflow testing without bringing up the Testo 440? Now, this kit is a comprehensive airflow and testing kit. The 440 is basically a handheld device. It's got a screen um, to read your measurements. It's got some buttons on it for scrolling through parameters. And it comes with a bunch of different probes. Now, I recently did a video using the air quality probe. Uh, it measures CO2, it measures humidity, and it measures temperature. Now, CO2 is a big one because a lot of people don't check this when they do their indoor air quality testing. It gets left out. CO2 can cause headaches, uh, dizziness, laziness, uh, grogginess, all, all those kinds of things. And we want our indoor air CO2 to be in the 800 parts per million range. We don't want it any higher than that. We get into the 1,100 parts per million range. That's when you start getting that tiredness, dizziness, and all that kind of stuff. But there's a whole bunch of other kinds of probes that come with it. Rotating vanes, hot wire anemometers. Go to testo.com. Check it out. If you want to go to um, truetechtools.com, you can check out all the pricing for all the different attachments. And if you didn't know, get preferred pricing for Testo at truetechtools.com by going to my homepage at hvacknowitall.com. Click on the True Tech Tools logo. There's a little uh, two-questionnaire survey there. Fill it out. Bam. Sign into your True Tech Tools account. Preferred Testo pricing you will see on the pages as you scroll through. 
So that's a Testo 440 comprehensive airflow and testing uh, apparatus and kit. Now, I was thinking about something the other day. It's getting cold outside. It's going to get colder probably. And if you guys work outside and you charge up systems, your tanks, if they get cold, you know what it's like getting um, refrigerant into the system. Who wants to go drag? You have to go find a hot hot pail of water. You fi Find hot water, a pail, drag it out wherever you are. Okay, you can do that. But your other option is Yellow Jacket sells a tank heater. Okay, 120 volt. You plug it in. Run a cord if you have to. Plug it in, wrap it around the tank. It's got a self-regulating thermostat. It heats that tank up, raises the pressure, and allows you to get that refrigerant in your system with ease. Trust me, it works. I had to use it a few months ago on a cold fall day, and it worked very, very well. Um, little tip for you from my pals at Refrigeration Technologies. Viper Wet Rag, we all know the effects it has when brazing up a valve. It protects the valve from heat. That's its job. And it does it way better than an actual soaked rag in a bucket of water. I did a video on it, and I proved that to myself. But there's water in it. So if you're driving around, it's in your truck, and you're below freezing, the wet rag could freeze. Now, a little tip for you. Chuck it in the microwave. That will heat it back up. It's safe to do so. That tip is brought to you by Refrigeration Technologies because I was scrolling through a discussion on wet rag one time and I saw them jump in and give that, give that tidbit to somebody that was talking about how it froze in their truck. So that's some good advice right there. Um, cool Air Products, you guys heard Mike Walton on the podcast last week. We talked about uh, their products, Smart Seal External, Smart Seal 3-in-1 Quick Shot. Now, this stuff came about, as we discussed in the podcast, um, in rail cars because of the, the excessive vibration and how Mike went about to try to solve this issue. And now it's available for the residential commercial market. Okay, so if this stuff was working in rail cars that are constantly moving around, vibrating, um, I don't see why we can't try it out in our residential and small commercial um, units in that application. All right, you just got to use it in the right application. Don't be putting it in a system where you're losing the gas in a week, okay, because it's not going to work. It has to be in the right situation, formicary corrosion, pinholes, stuff like that. Now... A lot of people say just replace the evaporator if it's leaking. Well, sometimes it's not that easy. Sometimes there's money involved. Sometimes there's lead time. There's all kinds of stuff. And I know I've repeated this before, but it's, it's the truth. Okay, that's what the main discussion is. Well, just fix the leak. Sometimes you can't fix the leak because there's 15 pinholes in a unit and you're not going to get at them. So this is a valid option. Okay, especially if the unit's on its last legs to get their customer through the summer or till the coil arrives or something along those lines. Now, the Armstrong Pump Competition Spot Armstrong Equipment, it's still on to the 31st. If you're listening to this in the new year, it's too late. Happy New Year, new, happy new year to you, but it's too late for the competition. If you're listening to this before the new year, 
Guys, go to armstrongfluidtechnology.com forward slash HVAC know it all and get your $20 Amazon gift card by signing up a unique pump entry. So the other day I saw some text van and I can't remember where it was scattered in papers on the dash. Now, needless to say, the tech is a slob, but if he was running a paperless system with his office, do you think that some of that could be avoided? Probably. Probably. A slob is going to be a slob regardless, but if we can help that slob cleaning up his mess by going to a paperless system and hey, I hate papers. I can't stand them. Um, I've went paperless billing for a lot of the stuff at home and whatnot. So if you guys are interested in going paperless for your office, invoicing, um, estimating, work orders, uh, quoting, all that kind of stuff, check out Field Pulse at fieldpulse.com forward slash HVAC know it all for your free trial. What's up, Jason? How you doing tonight, my man? Good, Gary. How are you? I'm good. Um, I want to thank you, first of all, for offering your services to get onto the podcast because um, we haven't done any type of um, podcasts or episodes on airflow. So I think it's really important, and it's not something I specialize in, as I kind of mentioned to you over texting through um, LinkedIn and whatnot. Uh, so I really appreciate you getting onto the podcast and having this discussion with us. So, um, what I wanted to ask you basically is first of all, like what kind of work you're doing in the industry, kind of how you got to that, uh, place and, um, just in general, what, what you're doing in the, in the trade right now. Well, I kind of, I came up, uh, actually in high school. Uh, I was actually fairly lucky. We were able to take refrigeration uh, in high school. So that was my first introduction to the trade, really. Uh, so from grades 10 through 12, I took refrigeration, and that kind of gave me the basis of, the ba- like, a basic knowledge of refrigeration and the physics involved. In- Can I ask you what high school you went to? Because it's not, I've seen, um, there's one high school. I grew up in Brampton, Ontario, and there was one high school that offered a refrigeration class and it was the only one I knew of like anywhere in uh, the Toronto area or like outside. it was in Brampton it was in Brampton yeah it was called Bramley Secondary School uh, what high okay. school did you take it at I went to West Lane Secondary in Niagara Falls cool so was it was it like a a program that they offered yearly or was it something that they just brought in once in a while oh no it was yearly it was essentially oh, yeah. another shop it was another shop class so cool that's awesome uh, yeah, it was really good. We get into, we actually got into building like full units. Like we'd have uh, bench units there with just the compressor and condenser, and then we'd have to build to the rest of it. Um, but and we got into welding and wiring, and basically it taught it taught you the fundamentals. Uh, awesome, awesome. And then after that, I tried getting an apprenticeship. Couldn't quite make that work. Long story short, I was way too cocky. So. That was on me. But uh, at one point, I was doing installs, uh, just retrofits. I was the helper, the gopher, you know. Uh, Then I kind of floated around a bit. And then one day, um, and then after high school, sorry, uh, I went to Humber College uh, for a couple of years. And Uh, who was your your teachers? Because I went to Humber as well. (laughs) 
Oh, okay. Uh, well, Nick Reggie was the program coordinator at the time. I know he's a pretty yeah. well-known guy in the industry. Yeah. In what Toronto. What year were you there? <clears throat> I was there from 05 to 07. Ah, uh, okay. All right, because I was there in, I guess it would have been 90, 98 and 99, I believe it was. So okay. I missed you by like seven years. <laughs> well, we, re- we connected now, so I don't think yeah. that's a big deal. Awesome. So anyway, I don't know if it was like this when you were there, but uh, part of Humber's curriculum was, uh, I guess, through Nick Reggie, uh, they were able to offer the HRAI uh, design courses as part of Humber's curriculum there. We did. We did touch on that. Yes. And I don't okay. remember. I don't remember any of it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so if you were to take it through, take these courses through HRAI, they're three day courses and they pretty much all the information is uh it comes at you pretty fast. Like I said, it's a, th- it's a full three-day course, and at the end of it, you write a test, and if you pass, then you are halfway to being legally able to approve drawings for submittal. Um, my personal opinions about that aside, uh, HRAI's course material is very much uh, – it's it's – good it's comprehensive but to me it's very much a, a stepping stone to really understand to really uh starting to understand the physics and the physics and uh, mathematics involved in doing these kind of calculations yeah because there's there's quite a lot involved so i mean if, if we fast forward to what you're doing right now because i know you're telling me just before we started recording and it was kind of cool um so so what are you up to now in the company that you're with now the company I'm with now is A Plus Air in Stony Creek. Uh, I've been there since 2008, uh, and I'm their HVAC designer. Nice. So most of our most of our work is residential new construction. So for each and we for each um, building or for each house that the builder has to build or wants to build, they have to submit for a building permit. So for that permit, they require HVAC designs. So I'll do a heat loss and a heat gain calculation, and I'll size the furnace, size the air conditioner. Um, I'll do a duct design and a duct layout on uh, AutoCAD, and then that goes to the city, and then we have contracts with builders, so uh, we usually get those jobs. So with our company, we basically stay with the job in every step from design to construction to finishing and, uh, and customer aftercare. Nice. Nice. So, so the topic of the podcast being like airflow and that. So, when when you're when you're um, when you when you're starting from scratch, how do we design a duct system to get the airflow correct in every room of the home? Because I know that it's a problem, and a lot like I get phone calls from friends. Hey, it's too hot upstairs in my house. Well. Mm-hmm. The, the warm air rises <laughs> and, and well, I know yeah, mo- nice. most of the homes aren't, the ductwork is not designed right. And, and the airflow is not distributed properly to, to cool the home and remove that warm air back to the furnace so we can cool it. So how do exactly. we start from scratch and make sure it's designed properly? Well, we do a proper heat loss and gain calculation. If you've, spe- um, if you've spoken to anyone in the U S you'll hear them talk about a manual J and a manual yep. D Okay. Okay. So manual J is, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a fairly robust uh, residential heat loss and gain method published by ACA. 
uh, Air Conditioning Contractors of America. And that's pretty much the gold standard of residential uh, load counts in the U.S. Okay. Here, uh, here in Canada, not so much. HRAI has published their own, uh, actually, sorry, CSA has published their own uh, document. Uh, it's actually a code. They call it uh, CSA F280. Okay. Um, you might hear about that. Uh, you might come across that, I mean, uh, in Canada or in Ontario. Um, the, the math behind it is identical. Uh, it's just presented in a slightly different way. Uh, they use different algorithms. There's um, one part that's really notoriously uh, hard to nail down is calculating a load for uh, below-grade uh, heat loss. Um, in the manual J, there's uh, they publish tables that have taken certain algorithms into account, um, whereas F280 in Canada, they've actually published um, an Excel spreadsheet that has all these calculations built in. So it'll act, it'll accurately model uh, a basement heat load uh, given type of insulation, uh, the dimensions of the basement, obviously, uh, if it's a walkout versus fully below grade. And then, of course, uh, it's specific to uh, location. So soil conditions in one part of the province or one part of the country will be different than others so it takes that all into account yeah exactly so so once we have our heat load calcs done we, what's the next step after that so the next step in residential anyway um in residential you're more likely to like you're given a, you have a house you've done a heat loss and gain for it and you're most likely going to go towards a specific furnace make uh, like in our case, we're a carrier dealer, so all my designs are with carrier equipment. Okay. Um, so I know we're going to install a carrier furnace, so I look up that product line. Uh, I find the right size, plug in the parameters. Now, a given furnace will have, you know, you've, you've probably seen the airflow chart. The given furnace will have uh, a given airflow based on whatever fan speed it's on and what the static pressure is going to be. So in a way, I'm kind of limited to using only a certain, uh, a couple of fan speeds versus finding out how much air the, the room needs and then selecting my equipment based on that. Okay. So what it'll, what the, what I'll do is, so what the program will do is it'll take your total load for each room and then um, it'll take the total CFM that's being put out by that furnace and it will divide that CFM by the room load. Okay. So that gives me CFM per BTU and then it multiplies that into, and then that multiplies into the heat loss of the room itself and then it comes out with a CFM value. So once you have the CFM per room, now we can start sizing the duct yes. to, get, to get that air there. Okay. Right. So what is what is the major like when I brought up friends calling me and saying it's too hot upstairs in my home? Is this something that can be fixed by properly designing um, the system, or is this just something that we have to deal with? Proper design for sure. Okay. Um, depending on how old the house is, 
it might be next to impossible to actually find the HVAC design for a house. I mean, if it was built in the last 10 years, the city would have it on record. If that city even required heat calcs. Um, the first step though, in that, in that case would be to establish a baseline. If you have the drawing, then you could see what was designed. Mm -hmm. And then, well, actually the first step would be do a visual inspection, see if it's even installed the way it was designed. Okay. Because that's when you, there are designers out there who do just that they design and they never see the house again. So when the contractor is, has won the job and they're putting it in, they're not necessarily going to go back to the designer and say, this doesn't work. Can we do this instead? They're just going to slap in whatever they can. Mm -hmm. Not to, not to impugn every contractor out there. I'm sure there's more contractors that, that obviously know what they're doing. Now, let but, me ask, let me ask you this question though. Sorry. I was, yeah, yeah. um, because you're into the design aspect and you take pride mm -hmm. in designing. Now there are companies out there that basically lick their finger and hold it in the air and go, okay, uh, 2000 square feet. You need a two ton unit, a two ton AC yeah. now. And that's a big, that's a big problem in our industry now. Okay. So, so how, how, Rule of thumbs don't exist in your world, or they do to a certain point. In my world, they don't. Okay. But fair enough. But in the world that I work in, they unfortunately do. Yes. Um, if you look up, uh, there's a man by the name of Gord Cook. He publishes an article, um, usually an article every month or every issue in uh, Mechanical Business Magazine. He's also the owner operator of a company out of Cambridge called Building Knowledge. Um, He's very, he's very much involved in the residential HVAC world, but he wrote an article a while ago that talked about this very issue, um, where in the past it was a it was a rule of thumb game, uh, whether it be furnaces or air conditioners, and the net effect was older houses would have oversized furnaces, so it got into customers' heads and even into some industry professionals that. As long as you're toasty, that's how, that's how big the furnace has to be. Or like, that's about it. There was no balancing. There was no, I mean, as long as you were comfortable and the limit didn't trip, then it was fine. Same with the air conditioner. If it was beer can cold, it was cold enough. Yeah. Now with, with doing professional design, and with increasing um, insulation requirements in new homes, we come to see that the actual required equipment size is a lot smaller than traditional uh, rules of thumb would have set would have led you to believe. Okay. Would have led someone to believe. Uh, perfect example. There is a builder that we work for, and they've got about 10, 15 models that they they build regularly. Anything from a small from a small bungalow to 2,500 square foot, two-story homes. Uh, the way they build their homes with the insulation packages that they've selected, their 25 square foot, 2,500 square foot house um, designed properly would require a 40,000 BTU furnace with a two and a half ton air. Mm -hmm. Now we put them in these houses and they work. I mean, I've gone in and I've balanced, I've checked temperatures, it, it works. But as soon as people see that, 
like customers, they get into their heads that it's too small. They don't, they don't necessarily stop to smell the roses, so to speak, or stop to consider how warm or how cool it is. They just think it's too small. My last house had, my last house was smaller than this and it had bigger equipment. Therefore you must be wrong. Mm-hmm. And we've actually come up, uh, come up against a number of, uh, I'm not going to say complaints, but a number of issues where a contractor will go into this to a house that I've designed and try to sell them an air and he'll, and he'll size by thumb. So he'll go into that house that I was describing 2,500 square feet and he'll say it needs at least a three and a half ton air and your builder tried to screw you by putting in too small of a furnace this furnace needs to be at least 80,000 BTUs and you need a three and a half ton air and go back to your builder because they, they are wrong. And I've actually had other contractors doctor up fake heat loss and gain calculations and send to us as proof. No way. Yeah. I even had a quote unquote uh, home inspector say that any house built in Ontario after 1980 that was over a certain size automatically needed an 80,000 BTU furnace, no matter what. And because they get to, they get into the customer's ear first, uh, we're left holding the bag almost because we know we've done our due diligence, mm-hmm. but these other, we, we get mugs slung in our face and we're kind of, we kind of don't have an immediate recourse. So that's, kind of a long way of saying that's why I go in and do airflow balancing because I have my design that I did myself and now I have the tools to uh, to check the operation of the furnace or the AC depending on the season uh, in real time and I can compare it to my design and if it's if it's out by a lot I can make adjustments if it's not then it's operating as per design so let's get into the air balancing aspect so once you've designed, once you've designed the um, the system, once you've got your calcs done, you've got your your duct in. Um, now we're ready to start up. So let's walk through um, an air balancing as from start to finish. Okay. So I'll go into the house. I'll go down to the furnace first. I'll I'll check to make sure that the fan speeds are set properly. Uh, I specify that on my drawing, and nine times out of ten, our installers will follow it. Okay. Um, rarely, like I said, if there's an aftermarket, uh, AC sale, like we don't necessarily provide the AC. We don't sell AC to every single homeowner. It's only if they want it during building stage or if they want to get it after, but a lot of times they'll, they'll go third party. So sometimes I'll, ch- so the first thing I'll check is the fan speed to make sure that it's set properly for the equipment and to make sure no one else is, has messed with it. Cause that can, if they've accidentally set it too low, then there's your, there's half your issue right there. Okay. So first I'll make sure they're set properly. Then I'll run the furnace for about 10 minutes. Make sure the, make sure the airflow is constant. Make sure the system is stable. Uh, at that point, I'll take a static pressure reading. Now, when you, can we just rewind for a minute? When you're doing the yeah. uh, air, air balancing, you're just running mm-hmm. the fan. You're not running the furnace or the AC. Oh, right? no, I'm running the Oh, no, I'm running the furnace and AC. Oh, you're running and the furnace AC. and AC, so you do... you do. Well, depending on the season. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to run the AC in the winter. But 
No, because usually the continuous fan is a lower speed setting than either of those two. Okay. All right. At least in, in my experience. Okay. Um, so, like, I, I design it to run at a certain speed on heating and a certain speed on cooling. So that's what I test at. Okay. Uh, so at that point, I'll take a static pressure reading, uh, excluding the coil and the filter. I, I like to get the total external static across the blower. That tells me uh, what kind of resistance it's working against. So usually, I'll assume in my design, I have to assume I have to account for all accessories, so dampers, coils, filters. Uh, we, we usually. In a production home, we usually have a one-inch um, throwaway filter in there, mm -hmm. so that's what I count for my counts. If a homeowner decides to put in a, a MER 15 Allergy Gold brick wall, then that also is going to cause airflow issues down the road. So yes. that's why I like to take my take my static pressure, make sure it's not being overworked at the beginning. I, should, yeah. I probably should have said this before. I like to start at the furnace and then work out. Okay. So if they're complaining about a master bedroom, I'll still start at the furnace just to make sure that it's... Yeah, no, good idea. I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. So if the static pressure is is around where I want it to be, uh, I'll check the dampers, make sure they're open. Um, by building code, actually, we should, we should be having volume dampers at each plenum um, takeoff, as well as at each uh, outlet just before the boot so we inst so we install those dampers on every house we do so if sometimes one of those dampers has gotten stuck closed during construction that could be that could be the cause of the issue or if one damper is a little too open and the air and as you know air is going to go with a path of least resistance so the air might be going, might be too easy to go to one side of the house, not as easy to go to the other side because there's a damper that's too far open or too far closed. So I'll look at those, try and balance those out. Uh, and then if everything checks out at the furnace, I go to each outlet and I've got a, I've got an anemometer with me. Actually, I have two. I have an old Testo 417 uh, mm -hmm. that predates me at the company. It's about 15 years <laughs> old, but it's still it still works. Yep. And awesome. then I've got the four and then I've got the 410i, which is the smart probe that comes with the that we were talking about. It comes in the in the four piece kit uh from Testo. And that one's a little smaller, but uh when I actually when I first got it, I compared them side by side uh, on the same run and they were they had identical results. So good on Testo for building a rock solid product. Yeah, no their their products are really good. Um, and I was going to ask you when you're taking your static pressure, um, where are you mm -hmm. taking, where are you taking your static pressure? Sorry to go backwards, but where are you taking your static pressure? Oh, I'll, I'll check that a few points. Uh, like I said, I like to get the total external. So that's just going to be strictly across the blower. So that would be after the filter and before the coil. Now this might wow. get me into trouble, but I like to, for the negative side, I like to drill into the. Uh, lower cabinet actually what I'll do is I'll find a knockout that hasn't been knocked out and make sure there's no wires on the other side and go through there okay then, I, I I ask these questions because there's going to be I know there's going to be people saying hey why didn't you ask him that <laughs> oh, I, was, yeah, I, was, sure. I was listening to the podcast and and I wanted to know that so 
like when so you're taking your um your static you said after the filter but before the yeah. coil right okay all right yeah so i mean if you look at a furnace the blower compartment is your is going to be is going to have negative pressure and the heat exchanger compartment will have your positive yes i have seen some guys they will drill into they'll either drill into the heat exchanger compartment or they will take the rollout switch and take it out and put their their pitot tube in there mm-hmm. i prefer not to play with fire so i just put it I just drill into the plenum just underneath the coil and above the uh, above the furnace casing. Now a pitot tube. <clears throat> I was gonna say a pitot tube for the guys that are that don't know. It's just like a little tube that you stick into. The, now is yours about six inches long or is it longer or? Uh, uh, it's a it's got a ninety degree bend to it. Now, okay. if you if you go to the supplier and they have it listed as a static tip, um, so static pressure. For those of you who don't know, uh, the reading has to be taken perpendicular to the airflow. So if air is flowing in one direction, like let's, <clears throat> there's little holes in the in the tube itself mm-hmm. that are that are drilled through either side, and so the airstream is actually traveling over top of this hole. It's not going in. Yep. That would actually give you velocity pressure, uh-huh. but it's going over because static pressure pushes out. That's a really the, good. That's a really good point. What you said, static pressure think needs of to a, be taken perp- perpendicular to airflow. That's that's yeah. a really good point. Think of a, and I know I saw this on LinkedIn somewhere. Think of a balloon. Uh, static pressure is basically what keeps a balloon inflated. But so just so you have the idea, it's pushing out. Um, now there are PO tubes on the market that are two and that are that will do both. So they'll have a hole in the body of the tube, and then they'll have a hole in the tip of it as well. And then you would hook up both ends of your manometer to it, and that would take it would take velocity pressure and static pressure, and it would give you total pressure. Uh, I'm not that advanced yet, so I'll I make do with the static. But uh, generally, in my line of work, velocity pressure isn't a huge that's not a, a huge detail that I check. Because mm-hmm. if my static pressure is there and my volume is there, mm-hmm. then I'm happy. Okay. All right. So so we can go back to kind of where you were at. You were so we once we have our static and once we get to the diffuser itself, you're checking with your anonometer and, and it was a rotating vein anonometer, right? The one the your yep. older one. And the newer one was the uh the smaller rotating vein, the smart probe. Yep. So okay. the only the only concession I made there was with the smaller one you have to do a what's called a timed average. So you kind of have to train yourself to basically run the probe over the diffuser. Yeah, you have to make sure that you do it in the same amount of time every time, so you have a an equal reading. Yeah, and so which is there a certain pattern you use all the time, or do you just kind of make I it? Kind of do it well. With the bigger, with the 417, it's got a four-inch vein on it, so I can just take three readings across the grill because it's a four by ten, and then average it. Uh, with the 410i, it's a little smaller, so I just do kind of a kind of a serpentine pattern, long ways. And on the on the on the Smart Probes app, that's why it has a timer on there for when you start doing and then for when you start doing an averaged or a sorry, I'm all over the place. Here. When you start doing a timed average, it starts a timer, so you can kind of keep it. Like for me, I try to keep it to 30 seconds. 
-hmm. So if you have that timer there, you can, <clears throat> and you try and keep your readings to 30 seconds or to whatever time you need, you can, you know that you can do that consistently and one reading won't be too slow, one reading won't be too fast. Now, one point I got to bring up, sorry, I, I just wanted to stop you there for one second. When you're doing yep. these timed averages, now I, I've done this um, with that same um, rotating vein uh, smart probe that you have. And I remember, uh, this is what, this was a while back, the last time I used it. And I remember there was a um, uh, something in the app where you needed to, to to calculate the the free area of the grill, yep. and and I believe that I I called the manufacturer and they actually gave it to me. I'm like, wow, they actually had that on file. So do you do you add that in to, yes. to what you're doing? And yes. and for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, is if if you take a grill and you put all these different slots in it, um, those slots account for restriction. So you kind of have yep. to fact factor those in as you're taking the airflow and the smart probes app actually has a um that that built in where you can just you can put that percent it's, it's done as a percentage right you just yeah. kind of any anemometer should be able to do that okay um so i actually so i i like information so i'll actually i actually have copies of all the grills and diffusers that we use and all their engineering data uh, we get them we get most of them from eh price or deflecto so the eh price guys they like to published catalogs. So I've got a set of those in my office for the times that we use them. Cool. But uh, so the factor that you're talking about, the manufacturer won't necessarily call it a free area. They call it an AK factor. So for each grill and register and diffuser that they, that they sell or that they manufacture, they'll publish performance data uh, for that, for that termination. Okay. Uh, so the size is usually going to be in inches, like standard residential diffuser is going to be a four by 10 or a return will be a 14 by six. But the AK, they express it in square feet. So you basically, you kind of have to do a little bit of math, find out the total square footage of the opening, even though it's going to be less than one in most cases. Mm -hmm. then, then take your AK factor, which is already in square feet and then you divide that you divide the ak by your total and then that gives you the percentage of free area and that's what you would put into your smart probes or your or whatever anemometer you have now how in like say let's say you skip that step of not putting this in how, how badly is that going to affect your your balance so so mathematically what that factor does is it's multiplying whatever result you get by that factor so let's say you've got a factor of 50% and you take a reading and and it comes up, let's say 40 CFM. If you were to ignore that factor and just put in 100, so it's 100% open, the anemometer will say it's 80 CFM mm -hmm. because it doesn't know that there's a grill there or it yeah. thinks that it's, it's wide open. Okay. Yeah, so, so it really matters then. Yeah, it does. And yeah. it is it is something that's overlooked, I think. I mean, I haven't talked to a lot of guys that do balancing like I do, mm -hmm. or at all. So I couldn't tell you what the consensus is. But that but I like to be as precise as possible. So yes, I will I will take that into account. Awesome. Uh, returns tend to be a little more open than supplies just because of I mean it's a return. So after, after more. Sorry, sorry. 
yeah, I was just going to say, after, so after we have these, after you check each diffuser, um, kind of what, where do we go from there in, in the air balancing process? So I've got a, I've got a report with me that I, that I make at the office and I bring with me there. So that report is a chart of each diffuser, where it's located, what the design airflow is, and then I've got free space where I write in what the actual measured airflow is. Okay. So that way I can measure each one. I can compare each one to see where they are. Uh, we'd like to see it within 10% of design either way. But if there's something that's way out of whack, like if there's an outlet that's got way too little airflow or way too much, then I, then I would start looking at uh, the balancing damper positions and trying to trying to look at what has too much, what has not enough, and then kind of do a bit and then do some fine tuning at each balancing damper, see how that affects it down this, um, the other end of the system or yeah, at that point it, it starts to become time consuming because then you're going to you almost need a couple to, of different diffusers and you almost just start from if, if 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 you're way out do you almost need to go back and start from scratch and and fine-tune everything again or because I, I i i just see you like trying to fine-tune one and then the other one over in the other room now that's way out of whack and now like you might as well go back and start from from scratch but yes that, that, and no there is kind of a sense to it because if you look at the design um and I know if I look at the design, I'll see which, or if I look at the installation, even I'll see which um, which runs are downstream of the one in question. Okay. Because those are the ones that are going to be affected first before it affects anything on the other side of the house or the other side of the system. So I know that if I play with the dampers in this area, it's going to affect whatever's downstream of it, higher or lower, depending on how the dampers are manipulated. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's why, that's what I, I try to do. I try to, I try to narrow it down to a certain area. Um, so yeah, like, like I said, it can be time consuming to kind of go back and forth. Uh, I spent, I've spent full days in customers houses before just because of the, well, one, they had a huge house, but two, they had about 50 diffusers. So I'd have to go to each one measure it if it was too out of whack do some manipulate some dampers then measure them again and again and again so it can so, get <clears throat> yeah it can get pretty tedious i'd imagine so one once you have let, let's say everything works out perfectly your air balancing works out perfectly you have the cfm at, at each room that you want are you kind of finished at that point or is there more steps after that at that point i'm pretty much satisfied like if the static pressure is is okay, if the vol if the air volume is okay, if the if the room temperatures are okay, if my temperature rise across the furnace is okay or across the coil, then at that point, I'm satisfied that it's operating within design, which is exactly what it was designed for. So at that point, I'm I'm done and I'm satisfied and the builder would be satisfied because they'll know now that it's operating as per design. It may, at this point, it's not always the end of the story for the customer because if they're still uncomfortable, then it's no longer a small fix. Now they're taught now if they're still too warm upstairs or if they still think it's too cool downstairs, then 
you have to start looking at, I mean, I don't want to jump right to this, but they have to start looking at possibly bigger equipment if they want that much more heat in a certain area. They don't need it, but that's kind of the nature of the beast at that point. Yeah, so some people are, it's like walking into an office building and there's there's three guys, and, and I find generally, and this is not a sexist comment at all, but I find generally men are warmer and women are colder, just the way we're built. There's guys sitting with t-shirts on sweating and women <laughs> freezing with with sweaters on. <laughs> sitting in the same office so i guess i'm gonna all the- I'm, gonna, I'm gonna i'm gonna plead the fifth on this one but i'll agree with you <laughs> so but but it's it's true though you can't you can't satisfy everybody and everybody has different, no d- different and here's, um, comfort and feeling here's when it where, comes to that. yeah sorry and here's where my uh my extra research kind of came into play so just to back up a little bit after I took the HRAI courses and I started doing design work at A Plus Air, uh, it was, it, I was satisfied for a while, but then I kind of said to myself, like, why is this the way it is? And why does this ducks, why does this number mean this duck size versus that duck size? What exactly is static pressure? So I kind of took it upon myself to do extra research and learn uh, kind of the ins and outs of, of these factors, so I went out and bought uh, I went out and bought Manual D, which for anyone interested in uh, residential duct design, I think is a must read, just because it goes into a lot of the physics of duct of residential duct design and operational um, standards and whatnot. Uh, so in there, they have in Manual D, they have a few chapters pertaining to homeowner comfort and. <clears throat> What they refer to as single zone systems, single zone meaning one thermostat, one piece of equipment, or one furnace, one air. The thing with single zone systems is the temperature's set point is only going to be reached at the thermostat. It's not going to be reached upstairs necessarily or, yep. or in the corners of the house. Um, so if they bought a single zone system, that's what you bought. And yep. That's all that can be said, really. Uh, <clears throat> there is a bigger push in the residential HVAC uh, industry to go with zoning, which we do a fair bit of zone systems. And I'm not going to lie, it's it's quite an investment at, uh, to begin with, but it, it doesn't compare to... Um, to a single zone system like oh, fully zoned 100 percent. yeah exactly i'm sure you've seen something like that in oh commercial, we, we, but... we, we do a lot of zone systems in in commercial and the uh the controllers themselves are thousands of dollars just to install <laughs> oh, <laughs> you yeah, know what i mean and and then there's all the then there's all the programming and commissioning and all that and i'll, and I'll give you mm-hmm. and everybody an example of why a zone system is good because in the winter time which yeah. it is now I have a fireplace in my family room and I'll sit and watch TV and I'll turn the fireplace on. And in the next room um, on the wall um, is the thermostat. So the, the the family room heats up and then the adjacent room starts to heat up and then the thermostat is satisfied. And I go upstairs to bed after, and my wife is in like a whole bunch of blankets. (laughs) It's it's cold up there, right? Because the thermostat Mm -hmm. isn't kicking in, in heat. 
because the thermostat is satisfied. But a zone system, if there was a thermostat upstairs, and then we could close off a damper to the down, or the, the first yep. floor, um, and then just heat the second floor, it would be, it would be perfect. But like you said, the upfront cost, and then there's the repair cost down the road if things go wrong. So there is more costs and more maintenance involved in it. But I can, I can see the benefit of if you have the money and you want to pay for it, um, and comfort, comfort is something that you kind of covet, then yeah, that, that's something that you should probably look into. Yeah, and I'll, I can say from our experience, like I said, we install carrier equipment. So we install carrier zone systems. They have fully, they have fully, uh, fully automatic zone dampers. So they're all, they're all controlled by actuators, which are in turn controlled by uh, the zone panel and the zone controls. So everything is automated. There's no bypass. There's no dump zone that they used like they used to do 25 years ago. Uh, and the thing works like it's it's smarter than me. I don't know how they I don't know how carrier does it, but like it know like it'll learn your uh, learn whether you're home or away. It'll learn your schedule eventually, uh, and you can have almost pinpoint temperature control at each zone. And it's really it's really second to none. Like when you're in one of these when you're in one of these houses and you see how the system works, it's just Great, and I wish I had some pictures to send you of some of our installs because some of them are really sharp looking. Yeah, yeah. When, when, whenever you come across some, you could send send them over my way. That would be awesome. Um, yeah, absolutely. But I was gonna say, like, it baffles my mind some of these people that design this stuff. Because I mean, I've I've dabbled in controls, and I've talked about this before. I can I can look at some some lines of code and be like, okay, yeah, I understand that. If this and that, and if temperature, if if the temperature is greater than this then do this i can understand some of it but i've looked mm -hmm. at codes and and i try to understand them and I, I i don't get migraine headaches like i don't get headaches that bad but after a while it feels like i'm getting a migraine headache looking at this stuff and i'm like how yeah. in the hell does anybody understand this stuff and just sit at a computer and fly through it i mean uh, it, it, it baffles my mind but i mean like you said these things are so smart the people that design them are even smarter um mm -hmm. so it, it, it it's it's just mind-blowing well, it, it takes all kinds in our industry those guys yeah. do the designing and we do the uh, do the installation and uh, troubleshooting yeah yeah the the, <clears throat> the the grunt work roping compressors up to the roof and... as long as we know our as long as we know our place in the hierarchy we'll be fine <laughs> that's right um <laughs> so what i wanted to touch on before we uh we kind of end things off is is one thing we never talked about when we went through our um or your um balancing of air one thing that we should probably touch on how important return air is because i'll give you an example of of how like important return air is i i was we used to mm -hmm. take care of a bunch of um enterprise car rental uh places and there's tons of them all over the place and it was like it was like you'd have like 45 minutes each one to go and and you're driving around you, you do like 10 of them in a day and you can only build like five and a half hours it was ridiculous but anyway are they using, I, are they using plenum space returns or are they yeah it, it, it no it was it was a plenum so i a okay. plenum space return so i i walked in and um they're like yeah the ac's not running like it's so hot in here and and i go up on the onto the roof and the ac's running um, there's tons of condensate coming out of the, uh, 
the trap and I go back downstairs and there's actually wallpaper peeling off the wall and it was so sticky and so humid and I'm looking around and I'm like it seems kind of weird that there's no return air in here Mm -hmm. so all I did was I don't know if they had renovations done or if some maintenance guy like replaced stuff or oh there's a hole in the ceiling I'm going to replace it I don't know what happened but all I did was pop a tile one tile right yep. and an, an hour later it was like a different world in in that in that building everybody was like oh it's so nice in here the humidity was gone I, you know what I mean and mm-hmm. like can you touch on how important return air is when you're doing your balancing and making sure that you have enough of it it's absolutely important uh, the easiest thing to remember, and this will apply to any any air distribution system, CFM out equals CFM in. So if you're not getting that CFM in through the return, it's not going to come out to supply. In residential, in our case, in our cases, um, most of the houses we work on or the production houses at least, they'll use uh they'll use joist and stud bays as returns, as return paths. Now I'm of two minds on this. One, it's good because it kind of saves space. You just use the, the wall cavity and the joist cavity and it's not extra round duct. On the other hand, you're at the mercy of the framer. Uh who's framing the walls, framing the floor. Uh, the plans will say that the, the floor joists are going to be at 69 center, but every once in a while, there, one will be kind of out from that. Same with the wall joists. Uh, what I'm getting at is the plate opening is really what's is our. It's going to be our narrowest point in the in a return air system like that. So that's really what controls how much air we can get back. So on a lot of my plans, actually, if I feel that a wall is too narrow for the plate opening or if the the studs and joists joists won't line up, uh, I'll actually specify on the plan, strap out this wall to two by six. That way we're getting a little more depth in that plate opening and that'll make up for uh, any deficiency, any other airflow, uh, any other framing issues that we might run into. One thing that we run into a lot is they'll frame the floor at 12 inches on center, but they'll frame the walls at 16 on center. So basically, if you were to look at a joist layout like that, I think every third or every fourth stud space or plate opening won't have a joist in the middle of it. All the other ones will will have a joist either in the middle or off to one side, and that affects your 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 plate opening area. That area is what's going to dictate how much air you can get back. If it's too small, then it's going to cause a larger pressure drop, and it's not likely going to pull much because it'll be easier to pull from somewhere else. But then if all your returns are like that, then your pressure is going to go up and your air flow is going to go down. Yeah. So CFM in equals CFM out. If you have low air flow coming in, you're going to have low coming out. So what about um, placement? Does it matter where they are in a home? Like, do you need, is it better to have one in every room or is it better to have it centralized in the Uh, home? Building code, Ontario building code states that you must have one return per floor. Saying that, 
we go, we like to go the extra mile on that. I like to see, I like to try and get one out of a master bedroom at the very least and a bedroom over the garage mm-hmm. and may, and maybe one in a, in a hallway. Now I'm talking about like a two story house. No, why, um, why a bedroom over a garage? Bedroom over the garage. They consider that a cold floor. Okay. Uh, even, if, even if it's insulated with spray foam and what have you, it's still over a cold space. Gotcha. Being the garage. So they like to see a return in that room. Um, Usually they'll put it low. They'll put a low overturn in a room over a garage just because in the heating season, that's where you're going to get your, theoretically, your coldest. Uh, it's funny. Air. It's funny you say all that back. because um, upstairs in my house, we have a return in the master bedroom and my middle son, his room is over the garage and he's got a return in his room. Mm-hmm. So it did that, falls did I design? Falls in love. Sorry, I said, did I design that house? Oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> hey man, po- possibly. Who knows? But yeah, that that's that's that, that's something uh, I wanted to touch on. And that's was, also was that's also something that varies a lot depending on who you talk to. Like some guys will say, yeah, on the second floor they've all got to be high up, or they've all got to be low, or you got to have two openings in each stud space, one for summer, one for winter, and you close off the one in the winter. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of opinions on it. Once you, <clears throat> but if you get into how the air behaves in a room, it ultimately shouldn't matter where the return is as long as it's in that space and as long as it's drawing properly. Mm-hmm. So think of, think of the air coming out of a register in a house. That air is continuously being pumped into the room. Now, it's losing velocity as soon as it leaves that grill, but it's at the same time, before it reaches terminal velocity, it's going to move, it's going to entrain some of the room air with it. So as it continuously blows air in, it's going to, you wouldn't feel it, but it's going to start to mix the room air. And eventually that mixing action will make its way to the return. Mm-hmm. So the air will be in motion. As long while the like the air in the room will be in motion as long as the duct system is delivering air continuously. Yeah. Not to a level where you'll necessarily feel it unless mm-hmm. you've got a really tight house, but that will eventually push the air towards the return. So as long as there's a communicating return in that room, it will draw air, and it will take back the. It will work. I should say. So I got one last question for you before we we kind of wrap things up, and that is fan on all the time or fan in auto mode? What's what's your thoughts on that? I like to say fan on because when the heat or the or the AC is not on, it'll still circulate the air throughout the house, and it'll do it at a lower speed, so it's not like it's not going to use up as much. Um, wattage or as much energy as it would if the fan were on on one of the other operating speeds i've seen Um, arguments for humid climates to shut the air off or shut the fan off um after the ac gets shut off because they don't want the residual moisture on the coil being evaporated and then put back into the airstream back into the home they want oh yeah no no i've heard that too um 
that's a, in the summer. Absolutely. Yes, you're right. I'm, I'm still in winter heating mode here. Um, yeah, in the summer, you don't want to have it on like that. Cause like you're saying, it'll just eject more uh, moisture back into the air carrier actually has a feature on some of their higher end furnaces that, um, it'll have a built in fan off delay, uh, after the cooling cycle completes just for that purpose. So you can have the fan on on or on continuous, but after the AC cycle finishes and the AC shuts down, uh, it'll activate a five minute timer and it'll also shut down the blower. So, it, so the coil has time to drain. I would, I would actually like to see a test, like to see what sort of um, humidity level we get out of continuing to run the fan after the AC shuts off. Like, I mean, it's, I know there's, there's the, the coil is going to be saturated in water. Um, but it's going to, most of it's going to continue to run down onto the pan, I would think. Um, it would be nice to see some sort of um, comparison to see if there was a major difference, to be Sounds honest. Like a trip, buddy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I leave my fan on. See, I have, a, I have an HRV, and I leave my fan on all the time, and I leave yeah. my HRV on low, and I just, I just mm -hmm. continuously let the fan uh, run and, and continuously let the HRV do its thing. Now in the dead of winter, it can get cold in the house because it really doesn't uh, um, absorb enough heat from the home, like the, the air coming into the home. It doesn't absorb enough heat from the air leaving to actually exchange that heat properly. So the air does kind of get cold coming out of the diffusers, but I still like to have that fresh air coming into the house and that stale air kind of being pumped out. Yeah, well, and that's the purpose of the HRV is yep. in their exchange, and they are mandatory now uh, in every new home just because of how tight they're they're getting. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this though: When was the last time you had your HRV balanced? Um, never. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> never. So upon startup, they are balanced. Uh, so the air, each airstream is balanced to be within ten percent of each other, and. In addition to, it should be balanced to whatever was specified in the design. Okay. Not sure how old your house is, but um, like, did it come with your house or is it? Yeah. Or did yeah. you buy it after? Okay. No, it came with it. My house is uh, about six years old. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, it would have been balanced the day of installation, or should I say, the day of activation, and they would have uh, put a sticker on there recording what the airflows were, supply and exhaust. Uh, the thing is, without regular maintenance, that balance that can become unbalanced, and you might be in, you might end up drawing more air than you're exhausting, or vice versa. Gotcha. That's why I that's why I asked when last time you had it done. Yeah, I, well, I I pull everything apart once in a while and I clean it all out, but I mean, I I don't really, I didn't really know that I. It makes a lot of sense now that 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 I would have to balance it. Yeah, because if I'm getting, mm -hmm. bringing in too much it's air, usually balance, usually balance. You can balance it with a with a manometer. Um, if you, look, if you find your manual, it should have, um, it'll have charts in the back showing CFMs at X amount of pressures. A lot of HRVs will have ports in the door that you can, you can take pressure readings from. You just gave me an idea for a good YouTube video. I'm going to have to figure out how to balance my HRV. <laughs> that wouldn't be a bad idea. No, it wouldn't. No. Okay, cool, man. Um, so we've talked for quite a while. We actually touched on quite a lot of good points there. And um, it was really awesome having you on the podcast because this is something we haven't done yet on the uh, the podcast. Has had an episode about 
um, designing um, ducts, doing load calculations and, and air balancing. So uh, thanks a lot, man, getting on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Anytime. So that was real interesting for me because, um, like I said in the intro of the podcast, I don't really get into air balancing whatsoever, duct design, load calculation. So it was really cool to have that discussion. I learned quite a bit of stuff. And I got to thank Jason for hopping on. Um, another great guest on the HVAC Know It All podcast. And that's what it's all about, guys. It's having great, informative, smart, intelligent guests that are passionate about the trade that helps us all learn. And that's what the podcast is about. It's to make you guys feel comfortable, to let you know we're not all, even though it's called the HVAC Know It All podcast, none of us are know-it-alls. None of us will ever be a know-it-all. And the name know-it-all that I chose for this whole brand is very sarcastic because of that. None of us will ever know it all. All right. But we can reach for the stars. We can try. We can learn. And we can continue to learn each and every day in this trade. And that's what the podcast and the whole brand is all about, is to kind of entertain, teach, and for me to learn as well. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you again, Jason. It's been a blast. I'm out. Oh, yeah, I forgot to say. Happy HVACing.